God gave no other rainbow sign, no more water, fire next time. Pharaoh's army got drowned in. Oh, Mary, don't weep. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Those words come from one of our American spirituals. And uh, I've been learning it and teaching it to the middle and high school kids at school, so it's on my mind when I think about the text from Genesis. I wonder to what degree those of you who hear this have either now or ever had any anxiety about why Jesus was baptized. I mean, I want you to be people as you hear or read these stories. I want you to wonder about these things. And here's why you might wonder. And one of the things that those who followed him in the moment, but then also in those years and decades, initially in the formation of the early Christian movement, and then really into the centuries after that, there was a key question that people were trying to dial in, and that's the question of who is Jesus really? He was the Messiah, but he was also something more. And the thing that they're trying to figure out is the divinity of Jesus. All the time he's hinting, he's being oblique often, but he's hinting at the fact that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that, yes, I'm the fulfillment of this earthly king, but there's more to it than that. And eventually, this becomes a central teaching of Christian orthodoxy. Right? Now, wherever you may be on your understanding of Jesus, this sort of eventually gets settled. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully human. And so as we think about our understanding of the purpose of being baptized, the different ways you may understand that, it should raise this question, why? Why would Jesus do this? Now, baptism in its, its Jewish form, because this is not an innovation of Christianity. Like, we didn't come up with baptism as a new rite. Ritual bathing was a part of their tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And there was a variety of reasons why somebody might be baptized. Among them was a baptism of repentance. So if you'd gotten off track, right, whether it was you'd you know, not followed some of the teachings of Moses, or maybe it was more moral and ethical and relational, then one of the things that you could do to kind of sacralize your desire to get back on track was to go to the synagogue or the temple, and you would do a ritual bath. And it was very common. You didn't do it just once. It was this, there was a rhythm to this. And so there was a baptism of repentance. And John, this wild man out in the wilderness, he's telling them, this is the baptism that I'm doing because I want you to repent to get ready for the coming of God, for the coming of Messiah. So he's calling out to people to do this. Now let me do a little bit of an aside here on this. Again, the idea of baptism was not new, and so they had institutionalized it. That's a good way to rob all the enchantment out of something, right? 
They codified it, and so they had built what I think are art, artful and beautiful ways of doing it at the synagogue. And it was a, uh, you know, sort of a, a pool built in stone. It was seven steps down. You'd move through the water, and it was seven steps up. So it had kind of baked into it kind of a, what I sometimes refer to as religious or spiritual OCD. Right? You, the numbers are, are sort of, they're pregnant with meaning. And seven, for them, goes back to the creation story. Six days God worked, and on the seventh day he rested. Right? The seventh day is a day of grace. So you work hard, and then on the seventh day you rest. And so for this variety of reasons that they might experience a sacralized or a holy bath, right? it's, that's part of it, seven steps down through the waters and seven steps out. When John does this baptism out in the river, right, out in the woods, he really is doing kind of an unsanctioned, rebellious, sticking it to the man baptism. And I say that as somebody who is the man. Right? I've been ordained in this institution, and we have a beautiful ritual that we've created and that is connected to this ancient ritual. And Jesus did too. In fact, I don't want to suggest to you even remotely that the baptism that Jesus does in the river would negate or say something negative about the ritual bathing that he would have done in his synagogue. He did that too. Right? It's a very common practice. But why go down to the river where John's doing kind of this this rogue baptism and do that baptism of repentance? Well, I think the answer is that part of what God wants to do when he came among us as one of us was to model. Right? What do you need to be a follower of God? And so he, whether Jesus needed it or not, he wanted to do it to model for us to do the same thing. Did you hear the language in the, the epistle to Peter? You are saved by baptism. You've got your cheat sheet. You can look at it. I think that's a, a teaching in an epistle that should cause us to wonder. I don't think my salvation comes from the fact that I was baptized. I think my salvation comes from God and that the baptism is a part of the beauty and the art of growing and living into that idea of God saving me. Even the word salvation Pretty, I feel pretty confident that for those of us in this room and watching on the stream, that we don't understand God's salvation as only God saving us from, from uh, hell into heaven, like an afterlife thing. That the salvation of God, as Jesus understood it, and that we do too, was much more holistic. And it's about your life and your relationships and the way that you live in a healthy way or a toxic way for yourself and others. That's the, God's salvation is expansive. Right? And so Jesus, if he you know, wants us to be baptized because it's part of the art of living into that life, that he'll model it for us. Right? Show us to do it. I want this to stir in you your questions and your thinking about why would he be baptized. And then after he's baptized, what does he do? That's a real question to the room. 
You know, he hears the voice, there's a dove, and then what happens? Where does he go? Yeah, he goes into the wilderness for how long? 40 days, right? What Jesus is doing is he's, he's being a mimic. He's, he's reliving and, and reenacting a portion of his people's salvation story, their salvation history. Right? He's going through water, and then he's coming out on the other side of the water, and he's going into the wilderness for 40 days. Are you guys picking up what that's mimicking? God calls Moses to go into Egypt and to rescue his people, to save them from that particular thing, that injustice, that systemic injustice. And then he pulls them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And so this is an invitation for you. As you think about your baptism, right? You hit that holy water as you come through the door. And you rethink and you relive and you reimagine your own salvation story. There's other speculations about 40. Scholars have wondered what ancients, ancient artists and writers thought about the number 40. I said this in the formation period. There's a period of what's called the United Monarchy. King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And the way that the scriptures reports these reigns is that each of them were 40 years long. Saul was 40. David was 39 and a half, <laughs> rounded up. And then Solomon reigned 40 years. Now, there's a part of us in the Episcopal Church we have sort of our artful, you know, devotional side that reads the Bible. And then we have kind of our post-enlightenment science, rationalistic way of reading the Bible. Right? So it raises the question, did they each really reign 40 years? Or when they were writing their story, were they being artful right? by reporting it as 40? Because of the symbolism of 40 as a part of our story. You want to know what the answer is? I don't know. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe yes is the answer to the question. That re the religion really is sort of the interplay between the, the, the rationalistic, logical side of us and our imaginative, fantastical story side of us. And then this is a case where that does this. Some speculation about the number 40. Um, how many weeks, sets of seven, does it take for a baby to, be, to gestate and to be born? It's 40. Did they notice that? Right? Did they notice that? And then here's a little sort of, I don't hope nobody's ever in this situation, but if a person is denied food, either fasting intentionally or they're, they're forced to fast, how many days can a, a, an adult human live without food? Not water, food. That's a leading question. 40. Did they notice that pattern too? And then somewhere along the, the line as they were fashioning their own sense of their relationship with God and each other, that they wove these into their story because of its beauty, the dark beauty of it, right? Going through the wilderness period then coming out on the other end strong enough to, to live out the life that God wants you to live. I don't know. This is the first week of Lent. And the great litany is a part of the work that we do to live into Lent. Um, but the, the larger idea is that if we would go through this hard thing, in whatever way you're trying to shape that, 
that when you come out on the other end, you will be strengthened to go into your ministry in the world. Right, those 40 days. And John said it when he was doing his rogue baptism. He said, I'm baptizing you with water. But there's one who's coming who's going to baptize you with fire and spirit. Right? The water is good. The water is beautiful. But what we really need is the next thing. So as we enter into this period of 40 days, let's do uh, some of the work that we need to do to experience, to be stretched, trusting that we are reliving and reenacting uh, our salvation history of which right now you are experiencing a part of. In the name of the Father and of the Son,